forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast. I'm Greg Smith, and I'm here with Dr. Royer. Say hi, Doc. Yo, hey, how's everybody doing out there? We're excited about our visitor today on the podcast. Yeah, before we introduce him, Doc, it's always an interesting part of this podcast to find out where you are. It's a little (laughs) bit like, where's Waldo? Where is Doc today? Where are you and where have you been and where are you going? Because your travels are so interesting. Yeah, that that is an interesting question, and it's going to get even more interesting the next few weeks. But currently, I am in Jacksonville, Florida. Just came down here from Charlotte and doing some work with some players for the 49ers. We're kind of off-season. We're getting close. You know, it's end of June, beginning of July. When you hear the podcast, it'll be at a different day, probably. But yeah, we're doing some on-field peak performance work with some some elite, very, very elite athletes. And it's a little hot. <laughs> it was 98 yesterday. Oh, and wow. we're trying to we're trying to do on-field work. So that makes it kind of exciting. But we like that because it increases the stress, which pushes the system. So we do a lot of work training people kind of in the office, in the chair. But now it's where the rubber hits the road. We want to get out there. We like the fact that we're stressing the system, but also trying to keep the autonomic nervous system nice and balanced. So it's a perfect setting. I mean, 98 degrees is hot, but it's exactly, it's better than having to heat up a building to do it. So it's great, you know. Well, that's super exciting. And we have some kind of interesting episodes coming up. And just to tease you, we'll be having a series that it's going to be paying attention to football and the NFL and some really interesting things. So. Pay attention to the podcast this summer. Well, we have an exciting guest today, very important individual in terms of the foundations of Inner Armor and the history of Inner Armor and the principles upon which a lot of the Inner Armor program is based. And so, Doc, do you want to introduce our guest today? Oh, yes. I am so delighted to have one of my best friends, but also professional colleague, Dr. Paul Gamich with us today. Uh, Paul and I go back to 1993-94 when we first met and I'm going to let Paul tell you what he does but when the just the, the beginning of the genesis of peak performance work that we've done in academics all of that really Paul and I go way back in integrating the neuropsychological pieces with the visual pieces which I mean they're significantly connected but like many things out there in medicine and in peak performance people are working in silos where they're not integrating these things and this is something that paul and i have strived to do for a very long time is integrating vision with the brain and how that works together to optimize people but paul introduce yourself kind of give us a little background and i'm super excited to have my good friend on with me today well, it's absolutely my pleasure, and it's always good to find out where you are as well. <laughs> Greg earlier, and it's like, well, I know where you are, I know where I am, but 
have no idea where Dr. Royer is, but always good to be with you guys. And uh, yeah, you know, my journey into, you know, vision therapy really started pretty early in my career. I started practice in 1989. Uh, I joined a practice that had already begun doing vision therapy, primarily with kids and working with academics and uh, learning related vision disorders and so forth. Uh, and from there, um, I decided to complete a postdoctoral fellowship uh, in visual development. It took about four years to do that. Uh, but from there, I really started to expand my interest into other areas, just knowing that you know, vision and how the brain is processing information obviously starts when we're young, academically in elementary school, we learn to read and write and so forth, but certainly becomes an integral part of what we do both professionally, whether you're um, working on a computer all day or um, expands into the things we enjoy doing uh, athletically. And um, just starting to realize that, boy, this has application in so many areas. So really started to expand my scope of practice a little bit there. And um, yeah, when I first met Dr. Royer, he started to realize that we're, we're working with the same population of kids, you know, kids that are struggling with just not achieving their optimal performance for some reason. And trying to figure out, okay, what's the underlying cause of some of those struggles? And so uh, when he started realizing that what he's doing and what I'm doing, they really coincide very well together. And so that kind of began, I guess, our working relationship, our professional relationship, where uh, we started working together and seeing what's the best way to combine what we're trying to accomplish vision-wise and certainly what the brain is doing. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And I'm uh, glad to like to be with you to talk further about that here this morning. Yeah, if, if our listeners could see all the different places that I've asked Dr. Gamich to go to, to assess people in the peak performance world and the limited time frame that I typically give him, Paul, we're doing it in the NBA draft for the number two pick. I need you in uh, Kansas City tomorrow. Can you please reschedule your day? <laughs> because this organization needs to know visually what's going with this athlete. And I can't think of a time, Paul, in the last 20 years that you haven't found a way to either get to Orlando or Portland or LA or San Francisco or New York. I mean, it's just crazy how uh, Paul will take his, these skills that are very unique to him. And when we apply them to sports, um, it, it, it has made his information has made critical decisions that our users out there in the area of sports probably don't even realize uh, as far as whole organizations that are relying on the input that he gives us about vision in relation to an athlete. I think our first major athlete that we started working with was probably Chris Kamen back in 2006. Um, and Paul was part of that run where we worked with Chris 
from a neuropsych standpoint, but also a visual standpoint. And um, by that year, he made the NBA All-Star team, which was uh, a huge part of Chris doing a ton of work, uh, but also the integration of the neuropsych side with the vision side. Um, so let's kind of start with that, Paul. Can you kind of explain like why, I mean, it, it seems somewhat intuitive, but we'd like maybe a little deeper explanation why the eyes uh, are so connected with the brain and, and what this is all about with the eyes and the brain and why it's important to see them as a team, uh, the eyes with the brain versus just, well, here are my eyes here. I go see this person for my eyes. Uh, and then I see this person maybe for my brain if I'm an athlete or an executive or a high performer. Can you explain the connection with the two and how they're related? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I, I can't take the credit for being able to make all of your schedule challenges work. Um, I've, I've got an amazing staff. Behind <laughs> uh, yeah. Really can call and thank them. Ready <laughs> to make some of your crazy requests, you know, but, uh, so it's, um, it's been a delight, but, um, yeah, you know, when we talk about vision and what's happening, uh, in the world of sports specifically, uh, I, I'm pretty pressed to imagine any sport really that doesn't require precise and accurate visual input, you know, uh, and of course, the level of that visual input, the speed of it increases as you go from, you know, maybe little league, you know, when you're a kid to, you know, eventually working up to club teams and playing for a high school team and to college and then on to sports. At each level, there, that ratchets it up the amount of, of visual and, you know, the skills needed to really work at your best at the optimal level. And so it's interesting as we start identifying where each person is individually as an athlete, uh, it's always fun to just kind of watch and see what are these guys coming to the table with already? Because many times these guys have very good guys or gals and very good visual skills already, you know, with, um, with their level of progression through the whatever sport they're they're uh, specializing in, they come to the table with pretty good skills. But just about everybody, wherever they're at, we can make improvements from there, right? Um, and sometimes we're actually surprised at the other side. And I remember when we first started working with, uh, with the NBA team, one of the one of the professional basketball players. He was a shooting guard. He was, he was playing professional basketball and he had a lazy eye on one eye. He was 20-20 visual acuity with one eye, 20-80 with the other eye. And the amazing part about it is he didn't even know it. Uh, and so wow. we doing testing. I mean, I, I really was scratching my head thinking, you know, how do you get all the way through college ball, get drafted into the NBA and not know that one of your eyes is not working correctly? But that was the reality for him. And of course, you know, to his credit, he had accomplished a lot of it using just one eye. And so, but in that situation, you know, obviously we were able to fit him with a contact lens to the one eye, get the visual acuity where it needed to be. 
But then you're kind of starting right from square one, right? You had to teach mm-hmm. the brain how to get both eyes working together as a team to start seeing true binocular vision or true depth perception, maybe for the first time in many years, if ever. And uh, he was all excited. I remember just watching him as like a kid in a candy store, you know, learning that, boy, I could actually get even better than where I'm at. So, so that's maybe one extreme side of the story where the other side is many times, you know, we may work with the NFL quarterback who, you know, already is coming to the table with pretty good skills. Uh, and yet our goal is to make those skills better where we look for the speed of their depth perception, for example, their ability to process visual information more quickly, more precisely. Uh, an area of what we call peripheral awareness, you know, where I can be looking straight ahead, but paying attention to what's going on with the sides. I mean, if you think about everything going on in a basketball court, for example, you know, the point guard has got a lot of decisions to make, and most of those decisions he's going to make are going to be based on what his vision is seeing, you know, how he's interpreting what's happening on the court. Uh, you know, where a good player can throw off his defender because his eyes are pointing this way, but he's not looking at that. He's actually paying attention to something going on in his periphery. Uh-huh. And so, and, and same thing, you know, you, with an NFL quarterback, if somebody just beat his left tackle, he better know that pretty quickly because otherwise he's about to be introduced to somebody he doesn't want to know very, very <laughs> All that to say, visual input is so critical for these guys uh, and gals and it's just been fun to be a part of that uh, and identifying what their skill levels at now and saying here's a plan of action for ways we can improve that yeah i kind of make the statement sometimes to to athletes to coaches to teams to just people out there trying to function at their peak that you know we're only as fast physically as our visual speed is. And so what's really striking, like we just assessed last week an entire Division I football team, 105 guys, right? And it never ceases to amaze me. Every single one of them has a different visual processing speed and a different, and we're going to get into this level of convergence, divergence, their integration of their vision with other mental capacities. And we put the scatter graph up there on the screen for all the coaches and they're just all over the map. And it, it just speaks to some guys have a different journey visually getting to where they get. This would be division one football. Uh, some it's very difficult. Some it's, you know, very easy, maybe visually. But you're only, can you kind of speak to that? But I can only react physically based on the efficiency of my visual processing speed. Like, like what's kind of going on there? You know, the Lord gave us two eyes and then decided that that was going to be the best way for our brain to process the world around us. So now the question is, why two eyes? You know, why not just mm. one big eye and you know make that one do everything we need to do? Well, 
having two eyes and looking at what they're actually doing is is really it's a miraculous process but frankly it's incredibly complex Uh, you think about the fact that each of our eyeballs has well a number of muscles that their job is to superimpose to align them correctly so those images are superimposed to the brain uh it's it's highly, highly complex. But any moment that one of those eyes is misaligned, okay, even uh-huh. a brief second, that interrupts the stream of information that's going to your brain. And when you think about what's happening neurologically, it's incredible uh, the amount of information that's going to your brain every millisecond. Uh, there's more neurological input to your brain from one eye than all your other four senses combined. I mean, that's what we're talking about as far as how much metabolic wow. activity is going on neurologically to the brain every millisecond. Uh-huh. And no supercomputer, even as good as our computers are today, no supercomputer could mimic exactly what's happening there as far as that type of neurological activity. So now when you, when you take that piece of information, multiply that by two, now you've got two eyes that are giving visual input, and then realize that part of the brain's job, there's a part of the brain that actually its job is to align the eyes, right? So that they're always pointing in the right direction, they're superimposing those images correctly so that now I can actually see 3D, right? Judge distances properly. So as I'm watching, you know, my receiver run a route and I know exactly where he is on the field and I know where he's about to be in the next second when I release that ball. Uh, those are all highly complex neurological systems. And if anything interrupts that, even for a brief millisecond, it just causes enough of a hiccup that the brain has to kind of get caught in mm. again. And so, so that's part of, you know, what we, what we do is by trying to identify how good are those skills, we try to work on them by moving it out of, you know, their realm of influence. So, for example, if somebody is having struggles reading, for example, like they always are losing their place and so forth. They want to move the, the treatment protocol out of the reading environment. So I don't want to just read more, just read more. That's not the answer. Uh-huh. You want to uh-huh. take it and isolate the, the skills that we're trying to improve. You mentioned convergence, divergence, you know, the ability for the eyes to work together as a team left and right. Uh, by improving those skills outside of what they're trying to accomplish on the field, for example, making them better and better. And then, so we brought it up to a conscious level, right? So we're using, we're engaging that part of the brain consciously, working on those skills. Now, as the skill levels improve, we want to push them back down to the subconscious level where they're not having to think about it anymore. Right. So we add what we call sophisticated distractors on top of that so that now those skills become more automatic 
breakdowns. They're not thinking consciously about it because, yeah, when you're reading, you're not supposed to be thinking about your eye movements, right? When you're trying to track that athlete running his route, you're not supposed to be thinking about your eye movements. So we want all those things, the skill levels that we accomplish to just become automatic so that there's um, a nice fluid response, no hiccups to the brain. It's just going to allow them to operate at their max potential. So could you give me some examples of if these eyes aren't aligned correctly, which when I was telling you about that team last time, last week, uh, 95% of the team had lower performance than what would be expected. But what are some examples that might happen in sports if these things aren't aligned? How's that going to impact various things? Can you give me a couple examples? Well, so one example might be uh, if, if I take the ball, you know, if, let's say I'm a quarterback, I just got the ball hiked to me and I'm starting to drop back into my position inside the pocket. As I'm scanning the world around me, if there is an issue where my eye is not fully tracking together with the other eye, even for a brief second, what's actually happening is a brief double vision. Okay? Wow. It doesn't yeah. register to the brain as double vision necessarily. Uh, so it's not like he's seeing two of everything, but neurologically, that's actually what's happening. So any small disparity on the retina technically does create a double image to the brain. So now the brain is going to figure out what to do with that information. Uh-huh. It's either got to figure out, do I just suppress it? Do I ignore it? Or I've got to figure out a way to get those, that information back on track so I'm not seeing a double image. Uh, and so, yeah, that brief moment of interruption is going to cause you to hesitate. You know, so for an example, if, if I'm watching this receiver run his route and all of a sudden, just for a brief moment, something interrupts with my vision, my brain, which is supposed to be able to pay attention fully and wholly to where is that guy in space that I can time my pass right on target. But just for a moment, my brain is him to think about something else that I'm not supposed to And that kind of is where the tie-in with the visual input to what you're trying to accomplish with the brain's processing, staying in the calm but mentally focused area. Because what we just did is we just increased a little bit of stress, right? Because there's a little bit of a mismatch. The brain knows there's not two receivers out there. He knows there's only one, but just for a moment, there was a little bit of mismatch uh, where my brain saw something that wasn't quite on track. And we're, again, we're, we're breaking that down to uh, like a, a fraction of a second. But it's just enough when you get to that level of sports, there's just enough of a hiccup there or a pause, if you will, that causes the timing to maybe be off just a little bit there. The other thing that's interesting is that any kind of stress to the brain collapses your attention. Mm. So we talk yeah, about that makes sense. virtual awareness. If I'm trying to pay attention to what's going on around me, but now something created stress to my brain, 
that coronary, that attentive field collapses so that now I'm really only able to attend to things that are just right in front of me. The analogy I like to use is that if someone were to throw a baseball right at you and it looks like it's going to hit your face, all of a sudden you're not paying attention to anything out to the side. You're now really focused on something about mm-hmm. that baseball and figuring out, do I duck? Do I try to catch it? You know, what do I do with that thing? So that's maybe a, a, a gross analogy of what we're talking about, but uh, we're trying to minimize stress. And that's why I think that our teamwork strategy has worked so well of trying to optimize the brain's processing skills has helped a lot because we don't want the visual attentive fields to start collapsing. When you're trying to figure out, you know, am I at risk? Of, did somebody beat one of my, uh, my tackles here? And, and same thing in a basketball court, you know, where's the guy that I'm trying to get the ball to? Where is he? And is he being guarded too heavily and so forth? So, yeah, I, I think this might explain sometimes like in basketball, you'll see like somebody get a rebound and, you know, they're focused on that ball coming to them. And then like somebody just picks their pocket, like, like immediately. It's like, how did they not see that guy reach in and grab that ball? But what you're kind of saying is like when this misalignment happens and there's more stress, I become more tunnel vision, right? Correct. And so then I then I'm compromising my peripheral awareness. Does this also affect like how well you're gonna perceive depth and that kind of thing? If if I mean, I know you can still have depth out of one eye, but how does that like misalignment impact my my depth? like my acuity of that. Yeah, so depth perception, if you think of binocular vision, right? We all know how binoculars work. Like if you're trying to look at something real far away, how critical is the alignment of those binoculars for it to work, right? Even if it's off a half an inch, it's just like, yeah, something's just Mm. working, right? But once you finally get on the lines, like, oh, there we go. Now I can see the way these uh-huh. are supposed to work. That's maybe a good example of what we're talking about. Because even if there's a slight misalignment with the eyes, that is going to impact your brain's ability to use the eyes together as a team. And again, we all do this without even thinking. It's, it's automatic. But, and, and you can learn to see death with one eye. It's just not the optimal way to do that. Now, we know a guy who uh, played professional ball in Europe that only had one eye. I mean, yeah. yeah. And he was actually really good at throwing at free throws. You know, if you remember the guy we're talking about, but he was just amazing because he learned how to do it with one eye. But when you put him in a dynamic situation, where he's moving, he wasn't quite as good at that because he did not have the advantage of both eyes helping him judge distances. So, so yeah, whenever there's any misalignment, or the other thing that can do that is if there's a, a disparity in visual acuity, right? So you discovered this the player I first mentioned, uh, the NBA, where one eye was clear and the other eye was not clear. He was at a distinct disadvantage because both eyes were not giving equal input, which is really what's required to judge distances properly. Yeah, I mean, I think you talking about that that guy that we work with, I actually uh, knew him in college. Yeah. I, 
he, he said, Hey, Tim, uh, I wasn't doc back then. I was Tim. He said, Hey, let's, let's go up and, um, let's shoot some free throws. And I'm like, okay. He said, I want to see how many I can make in a row. Uh, he proceeded to make 196, 196 free throws in a row, which was on, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, it's just, and I'm, I was tired just rebounding for him. Right. But the thing that was interesting, I mean, he was amazing. When you watched him play, you would notice how much his body would have to pivot, like his trunk and his shoulders were just strikingly different in the flow when he was working the court. Like it was almost like his body was having to pivot more and turn it. I remember just watching him turn his head a lot. And it was like, man, that guy moves his head a lot. Well, I think what, what was going on there, right? Well, it's like, because he didn't have the other eye, he had to rely on all the other muscle movements. And I assume that's going to affect speed, right? Like how quickly? No question. I mean, there are binocular clues to doubt. For example, of, you know, right now, as I'm looking at you, I, the speaker is blocking part of my screen. So I know by experience, that means the speaker is closer to me than the screen, right? Uh, you'll have the same thing when you're driving a car, you know, hey, that telephone pole right there is blocking the building which must mean that the telephone pole is closer to me than the building. So yeah. those monocular clues to duck there. And everybody has that same advantage. The challenge comes in is when I'm driving at night, for example, and all I have is a set of taillights in front of me, I don't have all those other clues to doubts. So I can't see telephone poles. It's too dark. So now I'm just trying to, I'm driving. I'm trying to determine how far is that car away from me. That's a pure depth perception. Now I need both eyes working together in order to judge that distance properly. And so when we talk about athletics, when I'm sitting at the free throw line, I can tell a little bit on my nightclub because that's why this guy was so good at throwing on throws. He knew part of the rim is blocking part of the back. Which moved that rim was closer to me than the backboard. And then by experience, and of course he had to practice, right? He did a lot of practices in that. He figured out how to determine exactly how far away the front of that rim was from him. But there you go. Now, when you set it up, you can't do that so effectively in every position on the court, uh, in every situation when you're moving. And so that requires pure depth perception, which is where he had a slight disadvantage. Uh, I mean, he beat either one of us in basketball. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, he, he had pretty amazing skills, but that's why he was so much better from the free throw line than he was in putting him out and moving uh, other situations. So a lot of times, you know, when we talk about vision in sports, uh, everybody immediately, you have an eye chart behind you. This, this The audience can't see this, but Paul's uh, Dr. Gamich has this eye chart behind him. But when we think of vision, when I think of vision before you came into my life, I just think of like, I can see, you know, like the eye chart. And I think when we think of an athlete, it's like an on off switch where it's like, you can see or you can't see, right? Like I'm 20, 20 or I'm this or that. But what you're talking about is 
a total different area besides just seeing. It's like this muscle component. Like I have muscles in my legs that I work out and I do squats, you know, and I have muscles in, you know, in the, all these athletes are working out in gyms. I mean, they're, that's where they're living, right? In these gyms uh, to get strong and coordinated. Because you, you kind of explained this to me. This isn't about strength as much as coordination, right? Can you, can you kind of tease that out? And our, we want our listeners to see just because an athlete can see an eye chart, which is static, that's not what we're talking about here. We're seeing, we tested 200 golfers in the, in the winter. Every collegiate golfers, every golfer had a different capacity of their convergence or divergence, which has to do with the, how the eyes were moving. So can you explain this difference between like strength and coordination in the eyes? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question because a lot of times when we think about doing vision therapy or eye exercises, people think the concept is I'm just trying to make my eye muscles stronger. And that's really not the case. The muscles that move the eyes are more than strong enough to handle the demand that we're asking to do. The issue, however, is the coordination of those muscles together as a team. Uh, and when you start breaking it down, the deeper you go down that rabbit hole, the more amazing the process gets. It's truly miraculous the way that we see the way we do, uh, because there are muscles that focus the image so that the image is clear. There are muscles that align the eyes so that they're superimposed and working together. And so, so the good analogy is when you take piano lessons, you're not learning to strengthen those muscles. You're learning how to get a muscle coordination skill that works better. As you're, as you're looking at a note on a page, your brain is trying to really figure out how to coordinate what it's seeing visually to what it has to respond to with motor stuff. So it's got to figure out how to move that one finger to the note that it's supposed to correspond to. So the coordination that we're looking for with vision therapy has to do with getting those muscles working together more efficiently so that you don't have that interruption you know, where you're not aligning properly. It's more of a muscle coordination um, and really, ultimately, what we're talking about is neurological input. The muscles are trying to support what the nerves are doing. Mm -hmm. Nerves are sending input to the brain, and the brain's job is to interpret that visual information. So the muscles are just trying to be as supportive. You know, they're trying to align this amazing complex organ we call the eyeball. They're trying to align as such input that's going neurological to your brain is accurate, it's efficient, and it's fast. Wow. How many, uh, what, what kind of number of muscles are we talking about in there? Like, is this a couple muscles? This is whatever. Well, I mean, uh, the muscles that arise, yeah, there are six primary muscles in, in each eye okay. that do the alignment part. Uh, and yeah, we, you know, it's interesting. They each have a very important job and they even work in a coordinated fashion. Like one of them will cyclo-rotate the eye, you know, <laughs> or the inferior oblique and the superior oblique 
makes them cyclo rotators. I mean, it's the, the more you've studied it, the more amazing it gets, truthfully. It's amazing. So, um, as we kind of get to the end here, let's talk about a little bit how we train this thing. So, I mean, do I just go out and like move my eyes in and out? Uh, you know, I know with training, we use these red, blue glasses. And can you explain to the user why, why we're having to use something that is kind of keeping the eye from going into this misalignment? Because I can't just go out and like look at things and move my, you know, fix this thing. There has to be a process where the brain figures that out. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the whole concept with the red and blue glasses is to isolate each eye individually so that now we can tell the brain and teach the brain, here's what I want you to do with each of those isolated images. You know, I want you to move them in this direction. Like I want your eyes to converge properly or I want them to diverge properly. So it's a way that we can um, move the eyes into movement. Maybe an unnatural position, isolated, where one would see a red image, one would see a blue image, and teach the brain in order for those two images to stay isolated and superimposed, what I want you to do is to converge, or I want you to diverge, or I want you to move together left or right. So it's, it's the way, like I was describing earlier, where we can move outside of a normal environment, work on a skill, improve that skill, and then when you get really good at it, when you've reached certain goals, now we want to make those skills so normal and automatic that you don't even think about that you're doing it anymore. So now, so we add these sophisticated distractors things that would require a higher level of cognitive thought so that now the things that you were working on are no longer in your cognitive thoughts. They're all subconscious, right? Fantastic. That's, that is so cool that when you introduce that technology to, to me, that we could actually strengthen this. And I mean, there's a lot of players we've worked with, uh, executives. I mean, Kurt Cousins talks about it a lot. I mean, he's done vision all the way back to pre-draft days uh, and how impactful it's had on his life and so many other people. Uh, the eyes are amazing. Uh, it's so cool to just have an opportunity to, to work with these amazing things. Um, and thank you for everything that you've taught me along the way about the eyes um, that I would have never used. I mean, I would have just stayed on the brain, but uh, now I realize in order to understand the brain and how it's going to work, I got to understand how the eyes work. So, so thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. So Dr. Gamage, as I'm listening to this fascinating conversation, one of the takeaways that I'm getting for our listeners is that when there is a lack of visual coordination, that all doesn't always look like a lack of visual coordination to the layperson. In other words, you would think that the guy would miss free throws, but the guy made 196 free throws. But it does manifest sometimes as um, a lack of speed, slowing down, a lack of full body coordination, because what we do is compensate. There's compensatory behaviors. So when the eyes aren't coordinated or working quite right, a lot of times we compensate, and those compensations are like symptoms that you can spot 
So the guy might, you know, throw darts into the bullseye all day long, but he's moving his body and he does it really slowly. So for those listeners who are out there wondering, do I have a, a visual acuity issue or a visual coordination issue? A lot of times it may not look like what you think it looks like, which is why you need to go to forgeinnerarmor.com and uh, learn more about getting an assessment about your precision and your power and your focus. And uh, we look forward to uh, Dr. Gamage staying with us for the next episode where we're going to explore more about the amazing gift that our eyes are and how necessary they are in all aspects of life. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. Dot com.